there are moments that mark us. Moments over the last month, over the last year, over our life that shape us and form us into who we are today. We have good moments in which we think about these wonderful things that have happened. Over the last year, I look back at what has happened at Ellerslie and I think of how wonderful Easter weekend was. On Good Friday, I was sitting with my family just to my left and teared up a couple times thinking about how powerful the music was and then how we took communion as a family, breaking these small loaves of bread together. I think of our 75th anniversary and this huge celebration that took place and the auditorium was packed. We told stories. We had people enjoy dessert out in the... uh, West Court. It was this wonderful time of gathering together and celebrating what God has done over the last number of years. And if you look back over your life, you probably think there are moments that were such full of joy. You had moments in which you graduated and you walked across the stage. You had moments in which you got married and your spouse or you were waiting at the front and the walk down the aisle. Your first car, your first job, your first kid. There's all these firsts that you can celebrate together. Think of moving across the city or across the country or even hopping over the pond to come to here to Ellerslie where you are today. These are the moments that shape us. There's also really hard moments, moments in which we lose a loved one, moments in which we go through a divorce or family estrangement, moments in which we thought we had our dream job only to lose it, moments in which our investments bottom out, moments in which we think this holiday is going to be amazing until it isn't. A few years ago, my wife and I decided we're going to buy a small RV that we can pull behind our SUV. And so for the very first time, we go out to Bonneville, about two and a half hours north of Edmonton. We're going to meet some friends. It's our first night in the campground. My wife makes a great meal, and then we're going to go down to the lake to hang out with our friends. We come back, and I wasn't the only one who thought the meal was delicious. A bear had torn out the screen of our RV, broken the faucet and our fender, and I thought, huh. This is what camping's all about. Sometimes it's not what you expect. Sometimes suffering doesn't make us laugh at the end. I was 30 years old, single, brand new lead pastor at Alberta Beach Alliance Church. And this gentleman who lived behind the church, we're gonna call him Jeff, not his real name, decided that he, as a man in his mid-60s, would teach this young new pastor about why the whole idea of church and God is just a sham. And so he walks into my office and he says, Dave, what is the answer to all the evil and suffering in this world? Because when I was a kid, something terrible happened to me. My dad was a violent alcoholic. And since he was drunk nearly all the time, my mom, myself, my siblings took the brunt of that force. He goes, one day I remember my dad went out to the bar and I knew he was gonna come home drunk. And so I decided to cry out to God. And I said, God, if you are real, if you exist, keep me safe tonight. Help dad not to hurt any of us when he gets home. A couple hours later, my dad got home. He walked in and he said to my mom, where's Jeff? I was cowering under my bed. He opened the door, he turned the light on, he pulled me out from under my bed and he gave me a licking. He goes, Dave, if God is real, where is he in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the evil that I am suffering right now? Got up out of my office, stormed out the door, left the building. What do you say to that? I read a lot over this past week, multiple authors talking about apologetics and specifically this whole issue of suffering. Every single one of them said the idea of evil, of pain, of suffering, whatever word they chose to use, is the greatest question that faces Christians today, both inside the church and outside the church. Without exception, they acknowledged how difficult it was. The Scottish philosopher David Hume poses it this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able to? 
then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil in this world? How do we answer that hard question? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon series on hard questions. Thank you that you are not afraid of hard questions. And God, as we come and discuss what can be so challenging at times, we pray, God, that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up. And that for each and every person here this day, we would be encouraged and strengthened by something that is spoken in this message this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you who are note takers, whether on paper or in your phone, here's the first point. There's going to be four today. Suffering is everyone's problem. Suffering is everyone's problem. And here's what I mean by that. This is week five in our series. Next week, we're going to wrap it up. But in the first week on New Year's Day, we talked about this big idea, why did Jesus have to die? And if we're engaging with our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, we're going to have to defend this position. Why did Jesus have to die? The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And so as we have the opportunity to share the gospel with our friends and our loved ones, we talk to them about how we have fallen short of God's glory. We have fallen short of God's perfection. So God sent his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect and holy life. He is the holy sacrifice on our behalf. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And then he rose triumphantly from the grave so that we might have a bridge, that we might have an ability to get back into relationship with God. We defend our position. The next week, I talked about uh, what does the Bible have to say about sex? And the people are looking at us going, does the church actually believe this antiquated viewpoint? Do you actually think that's real? We had to defend our position. The week after, we talked about how our Bible and science and conflict, we have to defend our position. Last week, Sid came and said, what is truth? We have to defend our position. But this is different. What do we do with suffering? Because suffering is everybody's problem. Everybody has to deal with that answer. And so you can easily turn the table on them. Okay, so if God doesn't exist, what do you do with suffering? Because you're still going to have to wrestle through it, whether God exists or not. You look at some of the big ideas, some of the big spiritual and religious worldviews around the world, and you have New Age and mysticism, and they never take the problem seriously. New Age and mysticism believe this big idea of pantheism, that all is God and God is all. And so the problem is that they never sufficiently deal with the challenges presented to us. What about the idea of Hinduism? This idea of karma has become common vernacular in our conversations this day. You get what you deserve. Okay, well then what happens when you're at that bottom rung? What happens for the, the Hindu believers who have an awful life? who things are terrible, or the people who are in prison, what happens when they get reincarnated? Does it get any better than that? What about atheism? A foundation in which is from Darwinism and survival of the fittest. And that, I read some terrible stories this past week of how people would say things like, well, if that's how my life is going to be treated, I can do whatever I want to make sure I get above the pack. Stories that will not be shared on a Sunday. But then you also have this idea of Islam. Endure the suffering because there's an afterlife waiting for you. At least they can say something greater is coming. But Christianity is totally different. Christianity says there is a problem of evil and suffering in the world. There's a promise to eradicate the evil and suffering in the world. And then Jesus enters into the evil and the suffering in the world. When Jesus comes to the world, not only does he enter into our pain and suffering, 
but he actually saves the world through our pain and our suffering. You have to deal with it at some point. The apologist William Lane Craig says it like this, paradoxically then, even though the problem of evil is the greatest objection to the existence of God, at the end of the day, God is the only solution to the problem of evil. If God does not exist, then we are lost without hope in a life filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering. God is the final answer to the problem of evil for he redeems evil and takes us into the everlasting joy of incommensurable good, fellowship with him. Suffering is everybody's problem. But let's be honest, many of us in this room are probably also wondering ourselves, well, how are we supposed to deal with it? Okay, so it's everybody's problem. That includes Christianity. So what if we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and thinking, well, God, why would you allow this evil to take place? Why do you allow this suffering? Why do you allow the pain to be here? If you pick up a book on apologetics, it will certainly have um, chapters that contain all sorts of different ideas and topics. Every single one of them talks about suffering. Every one that I opened. But only one dealt with this idea of human freedom. A couple had a sentence here, a paragraph there, but one book in particular dove a little bit deeper, and for that reason, I want to give a shout out to my friend Chris. He pastors in Vancouver. He wrote this chapter, and I think it has some great ideas in it. So let me share a couple illustrations. If you were here on Christmas Eve, I talked about how I had a horrible dating life before I met my wife. And you might think, ah, oh, he's just exaggerating. No, I'm not. I remember being in kindergarten and I had my friend Chad and Chad had an older sister in grade three and she had the crimped blonde hair. She was beautiful. <laughs> and I never dated a girl until my 20s. And I just couldn't make sense of it. I, couldn't, I don't know if I was too geeky, if I was too awkward, if I talked about sports too much. I have no idea what happened, but I could not meet a girl. But you know what I thought about often? Well, I am a geek. What if I invented a love potion? And thankfully, we have Harry Potter to answer that question for us. And Professor Slughorn says, a love potion doesn't really create love, of course. It is impossible to manufacture or imitate love. If you aren't free, that means your thoughts are determined by something outside of your control. If you aren't free, then your thoughts are determined by something outside of your control. Let me give you another example. I have two boys in my house, nine and seven. I hauled one of them out during this worship service because they were getting along so well. And I've read a couple parenting books, but no parenting books that I've read said, um, taught me how to deal with a son who comes up to me and says, Dad, Beckham put 47 cows in my Minecraft house, and now I'm really angry because there's cows everywhere. I don't know how to deal with that. If you do, please let me know. And so what we normally do in our house is we take one of the boys, usually the instigator, and we put him in his room and we give him 20, 30 minutes to just cool down and the other boy can play wherever he wants. But here's the thing. Once I pull that child out of his room, I can't congratulate him and say, good job on not hitting your brother for the last half hour. You were perfect. You didn't do anything wrong because it wasn't his choice. C.S. Lewis, speaking about human freedom, says this, free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give us free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating. 
And so we have freedom as this double-edged sword. We can choose to love our family or hate our neighbor. We can choose to build up the organization we work for, or we can choose to tear it down. We can choose to worship God or completely disregard his existence. We can choose to do good, or we can choose to do evil. And the reason human suffering exists is because human freedom exists. Right from the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, God looks at his creation, Adam and Eve, and he says, this is very good. And he says, you can eat from any tree in the garden, anything you want, but the one tree, you cannot eat of it. And so Adam and Eve had a choice. Are they going to worship God and be perfectly obedient to him, or are they going to disobey and face the punishment? And just like they did thousands of years ago, so we do today. Most people I've interacted with have seemed somewhat satisfied with this answer, but I can tell they're not fully satisfied. Why is it that human freedom sounds good, but it doesn't seem to answer the deepest questions that we have inside? We like this idea of human freedom. We like this idea that we get to choose our own friends. We like this idea that we can go to school and choose the job we want. We like this idea that we get to choose what we want to do with our own free time. But maybe the question is different. What if God just stepped in and prevented horrible things from happening? So then I can have my freedom and there won't be any suffering. What if instead of bombing the Ukraine, when Russia sends over their bombs, they magically turn into care packages and there's some medicine for you and there's some clothes for you and there's some food for you and everybody rejoices? What if instead of breaking into your house to steal your stuff, a robber breaks in the door and goes, eee! What these people really need is for me to do the dishes and put away the dirty laundry. It would be nice, but it's not going to work that way. It would be a world without consequence where morality doesn't mean anything. It would be a world without consequence where reality means nothing. We live in a world where our thoughts, our words, our actions have consequence both for good and for evil. And it's only in such a word that our personality and character have space to develop. It's only in this world where our personality and our character have space to develop. And just a moment ago, I made the comment that the answer of human freedom seemed to be engaging most people I've talked to about this, but it seemed like something was missing, that it wasn't quite enough, that people weren't fully satisfied. For the note takers, I think that's the problem. There's an underlying question that's taking place. Now, it's not unusual to have underlying questions. It happens all the time. Maybe your friends say to you something like this, hey, are you free on Friday night? And you think to yourself, well, I am. But if I say yes, what are they going to ask of me? And so you have to play it a little bit safely. Um, and you say, well, you know, I, I think I'm free. What's up? And they say, oh, I need your help to move. And you go, oh, I'm not available this Thursday night or any night. I'm completely unavailable forever. But if your friend says, I've got tickets to the Oilers game, you said, look at that. My schedule just magically opened and everything is good. I'm grateful for the work done by William Lane Craig, and this is uh, so helpful for me. He said, we need to differentiate between the emotional question and the intellectual question. In other words, when people say, why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? It sounds like an intellectual question, but it often masquerades as an emotional question. Hopefully we can all agree on some of the heinous things that happen in this world. We can agree that rape is awful. We can agree that humans should never be trafficked. We can agree that child abuse is a terrible thing. 
And so that last spring, when we bring in a guest speaker from International Justice Mission, and he stands up and he tells about this wonderful work that they are doing, eradicating human trafficking and drastically reducing the amount of times children are stolen from homes, we can cheer for that. And we're intellectually engaged and we say, thank you for the incredible work you're doing. Here's a one-time gift. I'd like to support you monthly, and that's wonderful. But what happens when it's an emotional problem? What happens when it's our daughter, our niece, our grandchild? And we scream out, but what about Susie? What are you doing about Susie? I don't know where my daughter is and I am freaking out. What are you doing about that? And then suddenly you realize, oh my goodness. They ask what seems like an intellectual question, but the emotion is deeply engaged. William Lane Craig says this, answering someone's emotional concern with an intellectual response will seem dry and uncaring. Answering someone's intellectual concern with emotion will seem superficial and weak. Back in the fall, I had a young adult come into my office and she said, Dave, I was raped last week. She does not wanna hear about human freedom. She wants to know, what does the Bible have to say about that? Why does God allow evil and suffering and pain in this place? And what can we do to overcome the challenges she's facing? Going back to those four worldviews, do they answer the question? I don't think they do, but I believe Christianity does. That Jesus comes into the world not only to enter into our pain and suffering, but to save the world through the pain and the suffering. And as followers of Jesus, we have to engage with that emotional question and with the intellectual question. One of the phrases that we've been using throughout this series is, love is our greatest apologetic. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But I think for some people, for some branches of Christianity, some pockets of Christianity, there's this idea that, well, if I don't feel God, then he doesn't exist. I haven't sensed God recently. Am I still a Christian? And we must put that to the side. There are times when we can't feel God, but that doesn't mean he's not absent. Psalm 88 is the deepest, darkest, most terrible psalm in the scriptures. The psalmist is crying out and he has lost everything. He has lost family. He has lost friends. He has lost his wealth. Nobody wants to talk to him. The very last verse in Psalm 88 says this. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. My closest friend is darkness. If you enjoy reading classic literature, St. John of the Cross um, writes the dark night of the soul. Spiritual authors all across the centuries have talked about what do you do when you can't feel God, when you can't sense his presence, and that goes on for weeks, for months, maybe even a year or more. Where's the hope? The hope in Psalm 88 is that the psalmist never stops talking to God. Some people will draw near to God, some people will pull away. In 2005, the Washington Post conducted a major survey of the Hurricane Katrina survivors who wound up as refugees in Houston. Remarkably, 81%, four out of five, said that it strengthened their faith. But we need to engage with that hurt. If love is our greatest apologetic, if we are going to truly love our neighbors, we need to engage with them with what their pain is, to talk about it to show Jesus in the midst of the darkness and to point them to some even greater joy that is yet to come. But what about the intellect? 
I think the next line's a fair summary of this concern. The intellectual problem is, how can there be the coexistence of God and suffering? How is that logically possible? The skeptic says the following two claims are logically inconsistent. The first is this, an all-loving, all-powerful God exists. That's the problem. If you believe this is true, if you believe, Christian, that an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God exists, why is there evil in this world? Because the second part is that evil and suffering also exist. And this is the question that's posed before us. The classic hymn comes to mind, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think it stems from Isaiah chapter six, verse three, where the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I think as followers of Christ, we acknowledge both of these points are true, even though we might not necessarily like them. But why are these two statements logically incompatible? I don't think they are. One statement is not the opposite of the other. If the second statement said something like, God is evil and created suffering in the world, certainly that would be a problem, but that's not what it says. Maybe an illustration would help. God created humans and God created angels. And I think the world is crying out, why God are those angels and those humans sometimes doing terrible things? But if we stand over here and we go, car manufacturers make cars. Nobody is blaming the car manufacturer when you get in a car accident. They blame the driver of that car. Perhaps the argument has a few hidden statements then that aren't readily apparent. If God is all-powerful, then he can just create any world he wants. As followers of Christ, we believe he has. He's created a world in which humans have freedom and they can choose to worship him or walk their own path. Maybe there's a second implication. If God is all-loving, he would want a world without suffering. And thankfully, as followers of Jesus, we can say we do have a world without suffering. It's heaven, and it's going to come on the other side of the grave. What if there's a third option? If God is all-knowing, he would understand evil is pointless. Now we're getting somewhere. Is it possible that many people don't believe there's a redeeming quality for evil and suffering? that nothing good can actually come from the pain that we're experiencing, that there's nothing to learn from job loss or death or destruction of relationships. Leads us to our fourth and final point, suffering and redemption. When our friends ask us the question, whether Christian friends or seeking friends, why does God allow pain and suffering? The implication for that is that there's nothing redeemable. But who gets to say this is pointless? Who gets to say that there's nothing good that comes from suffering? Who gets to say that there isn't things that take place in our lives that we learn from and grow from? Think about this question. As a general rule, do you grow closer to God through times of joy or through times of pain? We celebrate 50th anniversaries. We draw closer to God when we lose a loved one. We celebrate that first big job, that first big promotion that you went to school for. We draw closer to God when we lose that job and we don't know how we're gonna pay rent next month. If you've been around Ellerslie for a while, you may have heard me share this story before. I think I've shared it once in the past. The hardest and most challenging time of my life was in my first year of marriage. 
My wife and I had just built our first house. We were thrilled about it. It was this cute little duplex over in Spruce Grove. I was um, the pastor at Alberta Beach. My wife was working in the city. We thought we'd live in Spruce Grove and split the difference. Jenna had a job that she absolutely loved. Things were going swimmingly well. And then suddenly we get a call from our landlord and, uh, pardon me, our property manager in Calgary and says, I've got bad news. Your townhouse has been destroyed by your tenant. He has wrecked the toilet and every appliance except the oven. He meshed up the walls. He did some scrapes. It's about $12,000 of damage. My wife and I look at each other and go, oh, boy. A few days later, because it was the downturn in the economy, my wife lost her job as an executive assistant. Oh, and she was pregnant with her first child. I don't know how much you think rural church pastors make, I can assure you it's not enough to cover thousands of dollars of damage, a mortgage on a duplex, and a mortgage on a townhouse, and there's a baby coming. And yet it was in that time that my wife and I had our best time praying and talking together. It was at this time that I got to see the love of the church in Alberta Beach just surround their young pastor, praying for me regularly, slipping me cash here and there, saying, we know this isn't going to cover anything, but at least it helps alleviate the pain. If nothing else, I thought, these people really love me and Jenna. And it's through that pain that we begin to draw closer to God. There might not be this big redemptive story at the other end that we get to see, but God is at work and he's doing something. I've watched people in this building lose loved ones and how the church family surrounds them. I've watched people in our church family have a significant other in the hospital and the church family says, let us bring you food. Let us babysit your kids. Let us um, clean up your house so that when you get home, that's the last thing you have to worry about. I've seen people in our church family surround others who are going through a difficult divorce or estrangement from family. I've seen people walk into this church building and say, I have no hope. I've lost my job. I've lost my relationship. I'm hoping God will speak to me in some way, shape, or form. It's why I talk about Jesus in every sermon I preach. A couple of years ago, I read an article saying why my husband lost his job and it was the best thing that ever happened to us. I thought, well, I need to read that article. And they said, we were just spending money recklessly when we lost our job and realized that we wouldn't have much to live on. We started budgeting and realized how much money we were wasting. Then he had a new job and things were exponentially bigger. It's through these difficulties and experiencing these trials that we grow in our maturity. James begins his epistle with these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its works that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you enjoy reading and like to think deeply about spiritual things, Dallas Willard, now with Jesus, is fantastic. He writes this, one does not develop courage without facing danger, patience without trials, wisdom without heart and brain-racking puzzles, endurance without suffering, or temperance and honesty without temptations. These are the very things we treasure most about people. Ask yourself if you would be willing to be devoid of all these virtues. If your answer is no, then don't scorn the means of obtaining them. One of the 
great stories of suffering and redemption in the Bible is the story of Joseph. And if you wanna hear the story at length, Pastor Joel preached about it, I believe, last August. If you're not familiar with the story, here's a quick summary of what takes place. Jacob has 12 sons, but he's decided that out of all of his sons, Joseph would be his favorite. And so he sends the 11 sons out into the field to watch the sheep and the cattle and the rest of the livestock. And he says to Joseph, you get to work here with me and to learn management and how this whole farm and enterprise works. Well, his brothers are out underneath the starry sky, probably no tent. Who knows what the wilderness has to offer. Joseph gets to stay at home, um, sleep, uh, sleeping under tents with servants who are there to take care of him. And Joseph also begins to dream these incredible dreams. And he thinks to himself, I need to share these dreams with his brothers. And so he looks at his brothers and he says, guys, you won't believe the dream that I had. I had this dream where all 11 you bow down and worship me. Isn't that great? And his brothers are probably thinking, not so much, Joseph, not so much. He comes back a couple weeks later and says, guys, I had that same dream again. And this time mom and dad bow down to me too. Eventually, Jacob, his dad, sends the 11 boys out to find a place for the livestock to feed and to graze. After a couple of weeks, he hasn't heard from them, and so he says, Joseph, why don't you go out and see them? So Joseph goes out with his fancy new jacket. The jacket actually means he's in a management position. He has authority over his brothers. His brothers see him from uh, walking far away, and they said, this is our opportunity. We should kill him. One of the other brothers goes, ah, that's probably a little bit excessive. If we sell him, we could split the money, and then we'd still be rid of the problem and a little bit wealthier too. And they said, yeah, let's go with that. And so this caravan is passing by. They sell Joseph. He gets taken away, and they go back, and they say to their dad, dad, a wild animal killed your favorite son. We're really sorry. Joseph is taken down to Egypt. He ends up, thankfully, not in forced labor, but in management position because this uh, gentleman by the name of Potiphar, who is uh, the commander of the guard for Pharaoh's army, recognizes this man has real skills. He has real talents. I'm going to put him to work. And so he does well for Potiphar's house, so well that his, Potiphar's wife recognizes, wow, that is a good-looking young man. Asks him to come to bed with her. Joseph says, no, Potiphar's wife is embarrassed. And so she says to her husband, that man tried to rape me. Potiphar gets angry, says, I'm the captain of the guard, down to the jail with you. And so Joseph's life is going on this roller coaster. For two years, Joseph is suffering. For two years, he's wondering, I'm in jail because I did the right thing? For two years, God is working on his heart. Eventually, some circumstances take place, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, recognizes that there is somebody in Potiphar's dungeon who knows how to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh says to Joseph, Joseph, can you please come speak to me? I've had this dream. What does it mean? And Joseph looks at him and says, we're going to have a surplus, a bumper crop of, of food. We need to store that up because after seven big years, there's going to be seven lean years. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, says, you are so wise. I've learned from Potiphar. I've heard other things. You will be in charge of my entire kingdom, second only to me. And again, Joseph is going on this roller coaster, suffering and redemption, suffering and redemption. Jacob sends 10 of his sons. He keeps his new favorite son at home. His 10 sons come to Egypt and they stand before Pharaoh's second in command, Joseph. And they have no idea that that's their brother. Their brother recognizes them. Eventually there's this big family reunion. It's beautiful. But then his brothers go, what if this is all a play? What if Joseph is actually going to make our lives more miserable because of what we did to him? All of that to say, Genesis 50, verse 20. 
Joseph looks at his brothers and says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There are incredible stories. I haven't even begun to talk about the Babylonian captivity or what the prophets say about suffering. I haven't even mentioned Job and only talked about one of the Psalms. We haven't looked at very many of the New Testament verses at all, but there is verse after verse, story after story about how God is redeeming suffering. I've heard stories in person and reading them about people who their mother was raped. They got her, their mother got impregnated with them, but rather than aborting the child, they said, you know what, I'm gonna raise this child as my own. And that child, man or woman, has done wonderful things for the glory of God. I've seen people who are struggling with lifelong terminal illness uh, have other people feel sorry for them and they say, no, 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 it only helps us lean and depend on God more and more and more. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome says this, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. A couple chapters later, he expands on that idea and says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. God wants to redeem our suffering. But maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're watching online and you're thinking, I don't know how that impacts me. I don't know where the silver lining is in my life right now. That's totally fair. But after the grave, something great is going to take place. I've already shown my geekiness a little bit by quoting Harry Potter, so now let's go to some Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Tolkien was good friends with C.S. Lewis. If memory serves correctly, it was C.S. Lewis who said to him, you really need to write The Lord of the Rings. The people need to hear that. And Sam Gamgee is working with his friend Frodo, and along that journey during the Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf falls over a cliff, and everyone assumes he's dead. And at the end of the book, the return of the king, I'm gonna read this because I don't quite have it memorized. Sam comes up, to Gandalf and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Timothy Keller responds, the answer to Christianity is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue and will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. So where do we go from here? Worship team, why don't you join me on the platform? Each week during this series, we said that uh, I wanna strengthen your faith, that we have a God that you can ask any question of and he is not afraid of it, that there are going to be implications. What does that look like? How do we move forward with that? And while you may or may not have taken notes, what are a couple things that we can just wrap this up with? My biggest takeaway all week in my study was, is this an intellectual or is this an emotional question? I love how William Lane Craig says it. We might be answering an emotional question with an intellectual response and it's going to seem dry and uncaring. Or we might be trying to answer uh, an intellectual question with an emotional response and it will seem trite and, un and not powerful enough at all. So when we get to the question behind the question, what is your friend asking? Is this an intellectual challenge or is it an emotional challenge? If it's an intellectual challenge, we've talked about a few things. Where is the logical inconsistency of a great and holy, all-loving God and the fact that pain and suffering exist in this world? They are not incompatible. They can work together. 
But I think for me, the biggest idea is this one of human freedom, that suffering is part of human freedom, that we allow wonderful things to happen and the love that so many of us show and share, and sometimes evil takes place and relationships are broken and bad things happen. But that does not mean that God doesn't exist. But if it's an emotional question, we need to enter the pain of our friend. Throughout this series, we have been saying, love is the greatest apologetic. Love your friends deeply. Journey with them. Talk with them. Laugh with them and cry with them. I don't have it memorized, but it's about Romans 12, about verse 14. Laugh with those who laugh. Weep with those who weep. This is what love looks like. That famous verse, maybe the most popular verse in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God the Father, looking at God the Son, says, Jesus, I need you to go down there. I need you to enter into that suffering. I need you to be the perfect sacrifice for all of humanity. Jesus, knowing how deeply him and the Father and the Spirit care about all humanity, said, Dad, I'm going. And he came on a rescue mission to eradicate pain and suffering by entering into our pain and suffering, even death on a cross. That's the Jesus we worship. That is the answer to pain and suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not afraid of hard questions. Thank you that we can bring our questions, whatever they might be, whether it's sex or science or suffering or truth or the hiddenness of God or why did you die or why do all these things happen? Thank you, Jesus, for your answer and for your willingness to come in. God, please fill us with love, that we would answer people with love, that we would engage people with love, that we would show the love of Jesus to a hurt and broken world. And God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us wisdom, you would give us compassion, you would give us empathy to engage and to show others what the love of Jesus looks like. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen.